Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of For What It's Worth podcast. My schedule for posting podcasts is definitely not what it used to be, but I am busier than I used to be coming out of this uh, COVID rabbit hole that we've been in. And now everything is kind of exploding, and um, I just rearranged my desk. It still looks horrendous compared to most uh, YouTubers, if I'm going to throw myself in that category. Uh, I uh, It just looks like... It's a complete hodgepodge. My wife is listening to music in the other room, and the dryer is running behind me, so this is going to be loud and ugly. But I'm feisty this morning and need to get some things off my chest, and that's where we're going to be. I've got a crazy busy week. got a whole week of meetings that are taking place, uh, and I would be there in person, but I've also got a simultaneous event online event running this entire week where I have to make three presentations. I might have a potential of nine uh, private meetings pr- uh, in addition to those three presentations, and then the festival itself, which runs from like 8 in the morning until 5 at night. Plus, I've got about three or four other work projects that I have to work on this week as well. So it's, um, you know, it's funny when I run into people who think I'm a photographer still or that photography has anything to do with my job, and it doesn't and hasn't since 2010. So I think we can go ahead and let that ship sail now. Um, I just describe what my actual week is like, which I think might surprise some people. So, um, but yeah, that's the way it is and it's fine and I like it and I wouldn't want it any other way. Who is this podcast for? If you're new here and you're like, why did I, uh, is this a court ordered appointment? Did I have to do some penance? Is this part of my furlough program? This is for anyone who lost a limb to fireworks. If you've lost a finger, a hand, a wrist, an arm to fireworks, I think you're going to be here. When I was a kid, And I'm sure it's still happening today, although I don't pay attention to it. Uh, Every year, someone just, you know, got some original M80s or some original cherry bombs, which were legit explosives. This was back before everyone got afraid in America, and everything was tamed and tampered down, and, uh, you know, everyone told everyone else what they could do and what they could think. This was was free America. If you wanted cherry bombs and you were eight years old, you could get them. If you wanted to take M80s and tie them together into a piece of plastic tubing and make an insane, basically a car bomb, and you were eight and you had a grandparent who would buy you this stuff, you could do it. You could get it anywhere. You could get M80s and cherry bombs at like the at the 7-Eleven down the road, and you could blow your fingers off, which a lot of people did. So if you've lost a, a limb to fireworks, welcome aboard. This podcast is for you. And also anyone who cheats at fishing. If you cheat at fishing, you and I, we're on the same plane, my friend, because I think you're going to dig this podcast. Now, there's a story that made some headlines as of late about people cheating in a fishing tournament where a couple of bozos took their, their fish and stuffed them full of lead weights and threw them on the scale. Now, if this was going to happen behind closed doors or behind the scenes where maybe there was one other person involved, you would think, okay, there's a chance that this strategy could work. But the fish were put on a scale in front of the entire rest of the fishing tournament as well as like all the officials and the fans and everyone else. And when you look at the size of whatever it was, a walleye or a pike or whatever, it doesn't take long fishing to understand that when you visually see a fish, you can pretty much gauge where in the weight scale that fish is going to land. So let's say that you've got a 12-inch trout. It's not going to weigh 17 pounds. It won't. It doesn't matter if it's a cutthroat or a brookie or a rainbow or any other kind of trout. It's not going to be 17 pounds. So these guys got busted, and now they're like going to jail or something. It's absolutely crazy. But here's the thing. 
I have another cheating fishing story, and it was someone I knew. Yes, believe it or not. So I knew a guy who was a professional uh, guide, and he would guide people. That's how I met him, and uh, he went to a fishing tournament. He would guide, and he would also tour on the professional fishing tournament or tour, whatever it's called. And um, he decided that one day when he had landed a monster fish that he would just toss that baby in the freezer. And then the next time he was in a tournament, it would just emerge miraculously from somewhere inside the boat. He would throw it in the live well, and then he would throw it on the scale. And lo and behold, he would win the tournament and the measly prize money. Well, there was one small wrinkle and rub and problem with his plan, his master plan. And this is a lesson for all of us. If you're going to do this, if you're going to cheat in a fishing tournament, learn from the cheaters who came before you. He didn't, he forgot to thaw it out. So when the judges grabbed it, it was frozen. And that's hard to do in a boat in a lake in 100 degree weather. So he was busted and fled and went underground and I've never seen him or heard from him since. So he's out there. But if you cheat in fishing, welcome aboard. Welcome to the For What It's Worth podcast. You're a proud member of our listening society. Okay, the hero of the week. We've got a couple. The first is a friend of mine who is not in good condition. Uh, from what I know, he's in the hospital. He had a liver transplant, and his hospital bills are piling up like mad. I just found this out a few days ago when his studio assistant reached out to me and said, do you know what's happening? And I said, no. And she said, can I use one of your portraits of him for a crowdfunding thing? And I said, absolutely. And then I made a donation um, for him. And his name is Art Brewer. And he's considered by, by many people to sort of be the godfather of surf photography. But Art Brewer and I have a history that's kind of interesting and unique. So when I first moved to Southern California in 1996... Um, and I was working as a photographer. In 1997, I got a job with Eastman Kodak, Kodak Professional to be exact. And my job was uh, photographers west of the Rocky Mountains from Seattle to Phoenix, basically, and everywhere in between. And so my primary stomping ground, my hunting ground was Los Angeles. That's where I was, I was based. So Kodak had come out with a film called E100VS, Vivid Saturation, which was 100-speed transparency. And at the time, the film in the surf industry, literally almost the only film that anyone was shooting was Velvia, Fuji Velvia, which was a, a, on the box. And here we go again with box speed. Fuji was, was a 50-speed film. But the problem with, with Velvia was it's not a 50-speed film. It's about a, somewhere between 32 and 40. So, you, you know, any kind of low-light situation, you're already running out of light to use that film, although the film itself was completely badass. It was a great film. It dominated. In fact, some of the surf magazines mandated to their photographers that they had to use Velvia. So I came into the surf industry looking around, and I thought, that's crazy. Why would you shoot portraits with Velvia? Because your skin tone, when you shot Velvia for portraits, your skin tone was far, far, far too orange-red. It was too warm. That's not what that film was designed for. So I looked around at the surf industry, and I noticed that there were six or eight or ten photographers globally who just sort of were the legends, you know, and Art Brewer was one of them. Aaron Chang in San Diego, Ted Grambo. Um, uh, Brian Bielman, uh, there were ton tons of these folks around. I, I me eventually met many of these people by covering the North Shore, the Pipeline Masters on the North Shore, where I went to like 10 years in a row. The first few years I went for Kodak, and then subsequently I just went on my own because I loved going there, and it was so much, so much fun. 
So I, someone says to me, look, if you're going to get in, if you're going to get Kodak into the surf industry, you got to go meet Art Brewer. So I meet Art Brewer and I take down a couple of bricks of E100VS and I'm like, hey, I know that Velvy is the thing, but Art shot a ton of different things. He didn't just shoot surfing. He's commercial advertising, editorial, fine art, constantly making work. That's what I loved about him is that he was a very successful commercial photographer, but he carried a camera every day, no matter where he went. It wasn't, we, no one called it BTS then. It was never behind the scenes. It was just photography. It's what, it's what you, if that's what you were, that's what you did. It was simple as that. There was no reward for that stuff. It was just born from an insane desire to make pictures. So Art tests out E100VS and he goes, man, this is really good. This is, it's not the perfect film all the time. There is no such thing. But for what it is, this beats Velvia in a, in a lot of ways. So what he started doing, unbeknownst to me, is that when he would have images run in the magazine, it would say, Art Brewer Kodak. And I didn't ask him to do that. He just did it. And all of a sudden, all of these other photographers were like, what is that? Does he, is he sponsored by Kodak? Like, what is the deal? He was doing the job for me because he had cred in the industry, and I didn't. Nobody knew who I was. I was just a Kodak rep. And up until me, a lot of times Kodak reps were like old guys in suits that would come in, and they were technical people. They weren't photographers, so they really didn't understand what photographers in the field were going through. They just would you know, sell Kodak technology. And so I was a bit of an anomaly in that sense. Plus, Art and I related on a lot of photography fronts. We both loved Peter Beard. He had a big Peter Beard piece hanging above his desk in his studio. So he's my hero of the week because not only on a personal level, but I just admire him as a, as a creative, as a photographer in general, and someone with just this insatiable thirst for, for being a photographer. And I just wish young photographers could be around someone like that and see what it actually means to be a photographer at that level. Because most of the younger photographers I see working today have never been exposed to anyone like that. They just don't understand the, the level of commitment and also just the coolness of what it's like to be around someone that has knowledge like that. So my fingers are crossed for Art that he comes out of this. I know he's been in the hospital for quite some time. So my fingers are crossed, and um, you know I hope he comes out of this in flying colors and gets back to uh, to pressing the shutter button. Um, and the the second hero of the week is the bar-tailed godwit. Yes, the bar-tailed godwit, which just set a nonstop flight record of thirteen thousand five hundred and sixty k's from Alaska to Tasmania on its annual migration. So f you humans, you got nothing. That, can, that competes with this. The bar-tailed godwit, and this was like a yearling. This was not an adult. It wasn't quite a baby. Um, and it flew by itself, by the way. It was like, F you to the parents. Get away from me. I'm a teen, and I'm going on my own. And, and the, the physiology of the bird itself is absolutely astounding of what they have to do prior to a flight like this because their body transforms. Their organs transform. Their body adapts to take on a massive amount of fat, which they're then going to burn off. And when you study the logistics of the physicality and the physiology of what happens, it, it is remarkable. It is a miracle that this thing pulled it off. So that's my second hero of the week. The goats of the week. And hang on, I can hear my wife yapping in the other room. And it's driving me crazy. She is so loud. She's one of the loudest people you have ever met in your life. Even when, And when she tries to be quiet, it's even worse. 
So the goat of the week, and I don't mean greatest of all time. I mean goat as an ass, goof, dupe, um, idiot, loser, whatever. There's a ton of these. These are always easier to find than the heroes of the week, sadly, although there are tons of people doing really great stuff out there. So don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Most people in life, I feel, are trying to do the right thing. They're trying to contribute. They're try- trying to add something positive to the world. But, but, a, but a handful of others really go above and beyond. And really the one that jumps out that's kind of hard to avoid because yesterday we saw the ramifications of him running his mouth. Hang on, I got to go tell her to be quiet. Oh, man, that is just, she just looks at me with these sad eyes and just can't help herself. She's just loud. It's just the way it is, you know? And here's the door opening again. So, um, and now she's peeking around the corner as if I couldn't hear. I'm, I'm, I'm actually doing this live right now. Uh-oh. Yeah, so, and there was no reason to come in and open the door. That's married. That's married life. Okay, let's get back to go to the week. Kanye or yay, as he's known, referred to now. Kanye West um, dropped a couple, you know, a couple of weeks ago, drops, uh, begins to drop anti-Semitic bombs. Now, here's the thing about anti-Semitism. I'm married to a person who's Jewish. And when you're married to a Jew, you, this is something that you see and hear all the time, is anti-Semitism. And some of my friends are like, what? What are you talking about? Oh, I've never heard of that. Oh, it's never happened to me. Those people who are just like, I don't want to, I don't want to even know that this is going down. But for the past five years, really when the Trump took power is when it really exploded. It's been, anti-Semitism has been rife in America for longer than, you know, I've been married to my wife, but Trump really unleashed the gates. And this ties back to Charlottesville, where clearly when the white nationalists were, you know, literally walking through town with tiki torches yelling, the Jews will not replace us. And Trump basically said, hey, you're going to vote for me? Great. Um, every, and then told the Proud Boys and the other white nationalist groups to stand by. That was the floodgates opening. That was, and Trump's a buffoon. He doesn't know anything about this. He just knows that these people vote, and if they'll vote for him, he'll do and say whatever they want. And that's across the board. It's not just with white nationalist groups. He's just a moron that knows how to get votes. And so when Charlottesville opened the floodgates, and then all of a sudden, for the last five years, or 2016, basically, it has exploded. And it's now become so common that it's been normalized, that people, anti-Semitism is all over the place. So Kanye comes along, drops this bomb. And I have many friends out there who like Kanye's music. In fact, I had a friend who worked for him. And actually worked really closely with him and just kept sending me his music saying, you know, hey, you really got to listen to this. You got to listen to this. And I'm like, I don't want anything to do with that guy. I do not want anything to do with it because he says some of the most ignorant, awful things of any, you know, musician or celebrity out there. And the thing is, in America, the single most dominant social force in our entire culture is celebrity. It's not politician, it's not religion, it's not anyone who's out there who's, who's doing any like commendable work. It's celebrity. We like our celebrities and give them more power than any other group in our society. So Kanye falls into that. And with him, it's a combination of massive amounts of ignorance combined with what happens when you are a celebrity at that level and the level of detachment from reality and from everyday life because you almost have to be that detached because you're that famous. 
you know, you can't, can Brad Pitt walk down the street in LA without getting accosted? And I don't mean accosted and like assaulted. I just mean bothered by people. Can Keanu Reeves do that? All of these different things, these celebrities. And so when Kanye drops, I'm going to go DEFCON 3 on the Jews and then Instagram and whatever account, you know, shut him down. And he did an interview on Fox with Tucker Carlson. And the interview itself was astounding because what became very clear immediately was someone leaked the outtakes of that interview. And as a journalistic institution, you don't invite people in to be interviewed and then give them control of the interview, which is clearly what Fox did. Kanye had the control. And Tucker is just sitting there like a little sheep. And Kanye was saying things that were horrendous. And then he sort of caught himself and said, you know, hey, can I take that out? And Tucker, without missing a beat, in literally a quarter of a second said, done. Which means like, oh, you're going to let this person control the interview, which, which, you know, reminds you once again that this is not a media organization. This is a propaganda organization. Media organizations don't let people, con- the, inter- the person being interviewed, control the interview. That's not how it works. In fact, that would be a fireable offense at a, at a journalistic institution. So, but what Kanye did is he just triggered again, he just cracked open the irrigation canal slightly more than it was before. So he drops his anti-Semitic blast. Trump feels like he's getting left out. So he drops, he drops his anti-Semitic blast the next day. Then you have people on the overpasses in Los Angeles with banners and, and doing the Sig Heil, the, the Hitler arm salute and saying Kanye was right about the Jews. And this spirals. So now, yesterday at Jacksonville, during the NFL game, projected on the side of the stadium is Kanye was right about the Jews. This has become normalized. This is, again, massive amounts of ignorance and detachment. And then yesterday, the NBA star, Kyrie Irving from the New Jersey Nets, I believe, he posts a, uh, a, about a book that's also filled with anti-Semitic tropes. And when conf- the owner of the Nets says, this is unacceptable, you can't do this, of course, nothing happens to these people ever. It's not like the, the, the owner of the Nets says, dude, you're gone. Bye. See ya. Cut your salary. You're out of here. They would never do that because the guy makes money for him. So yes, he's dropping anti-Semitic tropes. And, and then when confronted, he doubles down on it. Now, this is a guy who has said in the past many, many ignorant things as well. He's a flat earther, number one. So you got to take it with a grain of salt. But again, this is the boiling anti-Semitism that is rampant in America. And again, we still sort of in some ways view our country. We want to. We see ourselves as post-war 1950s America. We just won the heroic battle. We're building suburbs. Everything is going to be great. We are so sophisticated. We are so better. But the truth is... The number one recreational activity in America, by far, is fishing. Okay, so you, you sophisticates out there who think that we're the best, you're the flag wavers, you're the ones saying that we're the best. We're not. We're not the best in any category statistically out there. We, ha- we average high. There's a lot of great things about the country, but our number one recreational activity is fishing. That should set the bar for you right there. And oh, by the way, we like to cheat at fishing too. So just trying to keep it real here. Kanye hits the list, but let's also go here and let's have a look-see at Clarence Thomas, our Supreme Court justice, who basically just broke the law in plain sight. I mean, plain sight. It is incredible to think that our Supreme Court, 
the highest court in the land is completely and utterly compromised. We Basically what happened is Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny Thomas, is a straight-up whack job. She holds a federal position, by the way. She's on the board of some federal thing. So she actively tried to overturn the 2020 election. She not only... Uh, texted with Mark Meadows, the ch- uh, Trump's chief of staff, and said, we have to vehemently oppose this and try to turn this over. She actually tried to support fake electors in two other states. They have all the communication. We know this happened. She was interviewed by January 6th committee. She is a whack job who basically illegally tried to turn over the American political election, the presidential election. We know this. When this case was brought to the courts, the first thing that Clarence Thomas should have done immediately was recuse himself because he has personal ties to this decision. He didn't. He just, because no one can touch these people. They are completely and utterly untouchable, and he knows that. So he did not only, not only did he not recuse himself, he barred the case from moving forward, at least for now. But this is the highest court in the land. Who's going to come in unless another justice would somehow be able to come in and say, dude, you need to recuse yourself? But we know now because of what Trump did, the courts waited to the right. It's completely compromised. So that's who we have. I would throw Clarence Thomas and Ginny Thomas under the bus here for being go to the week. And also, finally, my last go to the week, anyone on YouTube who has a blue gel in the background. Here's the thing, YouTube, and we're going to talk about this more in depth in a minute because this is absolutely insane. There is so much conformity on YouTube. I don't know who the first person that had a blue gel in the background was. Maybe it was Dave2D, who I think is really good, by the way. Maybe it was him. But now everyone has a blue gel in the background, and they're sitting in what looks kind of like a film studio, which I'm guessing is just a room of their house that they turned into a YouTube studio. Blue gel or purple gel or red gel? What's the deal with that? If someone else is already doing that, you don't do it. It's like copying. I just finished Memories of a Dog, Dido Moriyama. You don't go to Japan and try to copy Dido Moriyama, you ass. You go figure out who you are as a photographer and you make your own work. But yet YouTube and all these platforms, it's conform, 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 which is what we're talking about. So anytime I see a film start with a drone, I go away. And if I see someone with a blue gel in the background, I go away. Because I say to myself, they're, all they're doing is retreading and rehashing someone else. Because if you're conforming to that degree, that a, just I mean, that's a very specifically bizarre thing to copy. And it's all over the place. What is it with a blue gel? So yes, if you have a blue gel in the background, you're my, you're my go to the week. Okay, let's move on to these delicious, delicious and fat-free points that we're about to get to. I did a film about this last week, but I just want to mention it here. Point number one is Leica reintroducing the M6. And this is bizarre in some ways. Um, it is great in some ways because anything that keeps film alive is fantastic. And uh, I think, you know, this is it's nice. Not many people are, are introducing new film cameras, so that's pretty great. The M6 was never the legendary camera that all of the YouTube hipsters are, are saying it was. It wasn't. At the time it came out, yes, it was a camera that was appreciated, But it was not the greatest Leica in history. It wasn't. That's not how it was looked at at all. By the time the M6 came out, the technologies and SLRs, whether it was Nikon or Canon, had so far surpassed anything that Leica was making. And Leica SLRs, their R-series cameras, were, were, in my opinion, were 
flawed, yes, but fantastic and had the best glass of any camera system I've ever seen in my life, the Leica R glass. I mean, Salgado shot R6s and R6.2s and probably R4s for a long time. They all had mechanical problems. Um, I had a friend who shot the Super Bowl once back in the day with R's, and he was with a bunch of other people, and they somehow I think they got commissioned, to, and they were loaned this equipment, and at the end of the game, there were, none of the cameras were working. So there were some definite issues with these cameras. I loved them. I thought they felt great. They sounded great. They worked great. Yes, I had problems. I had two R6.2s. I had problems with them. Didn't matter. I still loved the cameras. The, the pros outweighed the cons. So releasing an M6, in my opinion, this is solely based on a handful of film content creators. I would call them content creators more than photographers, but they're content creators on YouTube, and they have sizable followings, and I think Leica just looked and said, look, these followings will do anything that these people say, literally anything. They will go to Manhattan. They will go to Tokyo. They will take an M6, and whatever film this person is using, whatever clothes they're wearing, whatever bag they're wearing, you know, they just want to be that person. And that was enough for them to reintroduce a camera that I think went under in like 2002. Kind of, kind of odd, yes. But I think, again, pro outweighs the con. This shows you the power of what someone on YouTube can actually do. Speaking of power... All these content creators, you got to tip your hat to Casey Neistat. Neistat is the one that laid the foundation. And where I see it most is music and cuts. So there's so many people cloning Casey Neistat's music and his trying to attempt to cut films like he cuts. The problem is that 99.9 of these people have nothing to say, whereas Casey has something to say and has had something to say for decades. You know, his obsession with recording and telling stories goes way back, probably goes back 30 plus years. And so he's in a whole different category. I think a lot of people that don't know anything about YouTube try to downplay him because they don't know anything about YouTube and they don't know his successes outside of YouTube. The guy deserves a ton of credit. None of these content creators, the film content people, are making anything as remotely impactful as what Casey has done and is doing now. So they've got a lot of ground to catch up. However, still seeing incredible success. You know, I'm sure they're making six figures plus on YouTube ad revenues and everything else. And so, you know, it beats um, digging ditches for a living, I'm pretty sure, because I have dug ditches for a living, by the way, so I know what I'm talking about. I've also installed hot tubs, would not recommend that. I would also been a fragrance model, would not recommend that. I was a bouncer for one night, would not recommend that. Lots and lots of other odd jobs along the way was paid to shoot prairie dogs. Yes, I was paid to pick up nails. Yep, all these illustrious things that turned me into the great human I am today. So that's just a little recap of the Leica reintroducing an M6. Um, I, I have an M4. I much prefer the M4 over the M6. I think it's a better camera in some ways. But again, too, and this is really funny because I mentioned this in the film, the Achilles heel of the M6 is the rewind crank, and it sits at an angle, and it sits up, and when you, when you drop this camera, it will bend, and the camera's inoperable. I mentioned that in the film, and I can't tell you how many people reached out and said, I broke mine too. I broke mine too. Camera was inoperable. Took forever to get fixed, blah, blah, blah. It's a real Achilles heel. The thing is, a lot of the, I think, YouTubers who are promoting this camera, I don't think any of them have been on assignment where you are sent to a location, whether it's domestic or foreign or something, where you're on assignment and your entire 100% of your being is on assignment. There is nothing else. You're not, you're not writing with your friends. You're not calling home. You're not sitting in a cafe. You are working. 
and I mean working, and you're thrust into environments where you're putting 20 to 30 rolls of film a day through a camera like an M6, which, you know, you got to rewind and reload that thing. And the amount of abuse that your body and your equipment takes on an assignment like that, it's a different thing. These YouTubers are not on assignments like that. I think some of these folks have never been on an assignment, which is, again, kind of cool that you don't have to deal with any of that. You can just do whatever it is you want. You can sort of fabricate your own identity and lifestyle and then film it and put it out there, and, and you don't have to ever deal with that other side. But again, having just finished Memories of a Dog by Dado Moriyama this morning, Anyone who's ever been in on an assignment like that knows when you read that book exactly what he is talking about. The, the idea, the anguish that photography can create while you're in the field. The fear, the obsession, the anguish, the pressure, and also realizing the, the vast majority of what you make does not work. And when I'm reading Moriyama talking about that, you know, oh, I was out today, I shot 10 rolls of film, but I, I missed, like I'm not connecting here. That is such the antithesis of what YouTube content creators discuss. They don't talk about that. There's very little talk of failure because failure doesn't come with view count. And everything is about views and also click-through rates and, and average view duration, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Let's move on. Point number two is an NFL update. Man, do I love to see that bum Tom Brady losing. Look, Brady, probably the single best quarterback in the history of the game, no doubt. Going through a divorce, that has to be horrible. He should not have come back this year. It's gloomy and awful, and it just reeks of someone who, who hung on too long. Although, Obviously, I'm not, I don't know him. It sucks that he's going through a divorce. It's going to be a very public divorce. That's got to make it exponentially worse. So being out of the house, I don't know if that had anything to do with his decision to stay in the NFL, but it's ugly. It looks a little bit like the game has passed him by, and so does it for Aaron Rodgers. And, you know, I, don't, I was joking about um, the bum Tom Brady. He's not a bum. He's, again, arguably the greatest quarterback. And I'm a huge Drew Brees fan. But, you know, Brady, those two are neck and neck for a lot of the records. Rodgers is just, an, I just, he just rubs me the wrong way. Anyone who self-titles as a critical thinker and then says some of the things he does, just, again, massive amounts of detachment. Because, again, how does a guy like that go into the world on a daily basis? You can't. You're detached. Your friends are supposed to be the ones that get you to shut up. Your friends are the ones that say, stop talking. Don't say those things. It makes you sound ignorant when you're dribbling on about what a critical thinker you are and lying about a, a COVID vaccine. You know, those two, the critical thinker and lying about COVID vaccine, don't, they, they don't run together. That's not how it works. So I love watching Aaron Rodgers lose. Brady, not so much. It's just a bummer. I think he should have stayed away. The NFL sucks. Let me, let me just say that. It sucks. Um, I don't watch it anymore, and I haven't watched it in a long time. I've tried a couple of times, but here's the thing. You have the Bills and the Eagles, and then you have the Cowboys and the Chiefs. Those are kind of like the two levels. The Bills and the Eagles, to me, are far, far beyond anyone else. And you have the sort of second-tier Cowboys and Chiefs that could beat either of these other two teams on a given day. But overall, right now, they still look uh, inconsistent. 
Then you have the crap that is the rest of the NFL, including my beloved New Orleans Saints, who are going nowhere. It would be better for them to just lose out for the rest of the year and try to get some lottery picks. They have so many positions to fill. So the, the NFL wanted parity forever, and this is on Goodell. And Goodell doesn't care because he's making money for the owners. That's the only thing that matters. That guy, how he still has a job is a miracle, I think, in any other field. He would probably been fired and maybe even indicted because some of the stuff he's done as the commissioner in the NFL is so shady. It's crazy, but he gets away with it because, again, he puts money in the pockets of the owners. They're the controlling force. It's not the Players Association. So I tried to watch a few minutes of a couple of games, and it's horrible. You know, my father was a Packer fan. They're terrible. My brother and my mother are Bears fans. They're terrible. I'm a Saints fan. They're terrible. Um, the vast majority of these teams have absolutely no chance. You know, when you see the the Vikings playing the Panthers and the Eagles playing or the Falcons playing Tampa Bay, and you're like, this is an exercise in futility. Just get the season over with. Just, you know, play six games. Don't play whatever it is, 18. We all know you guys have no chance whatsoever. And just get the four teams that actually have some sort of remote chance and just get it over with. Just put the league out of its misery for the year. Um, that's obviously never going to happen. There's too much money to be made. But um, it's just not the game that I used to watch as a kid. I, I just think it's completely... Uh, not good. I, just, I think to, to use a bad cliche that you hear on the media all the time, the product is not good anymore, unless you're a Bills or Eagles fan or Cowboys or, or um, you know, Chiefs fan where you're like, yeah, yeah, it is good, man. This is great. Everything's fine. No, don't, nothing to see here. Just move along. That's my take on the NFL right now. Um, I don't watch anymore. Sundays for me are about uh, being outside, like some sort of fitness thing has to happen uh, yesterday, which was Sunday, I did my body weight exercise in the morning, did 30 miles on the new bike, and uh, and then I worked. Sunday's a really good day for me to work because nobody else is working and I get a ton of stuff done. I did so many blog posts yesterday and then also started working on the presentation that I have to give on December 3rd, which is a big one. So, um, okay, point number three is about paying taxes. So I have, I, this is a legit question. And I know how you guys are going to answer this, and I know how the general public would answer this, but it does get me thinking. I mentioned before, we know the Supreme Court is compromised. Getting The FBI never looked at the Brett Kavanaugh stuff, which they should have. That probably should have kept him from becoming a, a Supreme Court justice. Um, Amy Comey, Comey Barrett is a whack job. Um, she cannot be trusted. We know Clarence Thomas is, is compromised. If the Supreme Court is compromised and our government is no longer functioning in the form of serving the people. And I'm going to throw someone else in this mix right here, which is Tom Cotton, who talk about gutless. Oh, my God. Watching him in the background of the Herschel Walker, uh, not the first abortion scandal, the second abortion scandal, which all came down within about a 10-day period. Tom Cotton's in the background trying to prop up Herschel Walker because it's not about policy or people or humanity or anything else. It's just about power. It's about keeping the numbers up so that the Republicans gain power. That's the only thing. The look on his face when Herschel Walker was denying this was absolutely priceless. But And then Tom Cotton was caught saying that he ignored all the evidence in the Trump trial. Like he had fake reading materials that were hiding what he was really reading while he was ignoring everything that was going on in the trial. So clearly the government is no longer functioning for the benefit of the people. The government is functioning for the benefit of themselves. So why are we paying taxes? Why do any of us have to pay any taxes 
towards a government that's no longer functioning for the people. It's just functioning for itself. These are people who are doing nothing more than finding ways to can keep themselves in power to line their own pockets. The government failed. So why collectively do we not together get together as a population and say, that's it. We're not supporting you anymore. There's no taxes coming in, no sales tax, no income tax, no nothing. Forget it until we write the ship. That would be my suggestion is because it's so clear. These, these people don't even have to hide the fact that they're doing this. So when Cotton is caught and confronted and says, you know, I think he put it in a book, actually. They know their, their, the impunity they have to have any sort of retribution because the, the country has become so radicalized to party that they just say, well, look, I don't need to even hide from doing this. I can lie get caught, double down, lie again, get caught, double down, nothing happens. So <clears throat> I just feel like the tax money that I'm paying is really not of benefit because the government's not benefiting us anymore. So what's the point? I don't know. Tell me, tell me I'm wrong. Point number four, the Salsa Fargo tie rebuild. Uh, it's uh, did, a, did a post about this, did a film about this. Uh, again, this is the new Salsa Fargo tie that I have is by far the best bike I've ever had. And I backed into it. Let's be very, very clear here. This was not something I went out and said, I'm going to buy the new Salsa Fargo titanium. No, I bought a Salsa Fargo titanium in 2013. Back again, when it was, these bikes were not common. Everyone said, don't buy that bike. I was like, nope, that's the bike for me. So I bought it, loved it 10 years, rode it all the time. My all-time favorite bike frame breaks, reach out to Salsa. Salsa says, we're going to Goodwill replace this. I'm stunned. I can't believe it. I go to the local bike shop. He can't believe it either. He's like, whoa, you know, you totally lucked out. And then I said, okay, I'm lucking out getting this great frame. I don't want to put crappy old components. I need to rebuild it with something new, thinking about this as the prototype bike of the future for me. And it's completely changed everything in the process. And here's where I want to, this is what I want to talk about specifically. You can watch the film about it, or even look at some of the blog posts I've been doing. But I turned the bike into a single speed, and this was prob there's probably a little residue of the fact that the guy who runs the bike shop that I use here in town, who's awesome, he's very well known in the single speed world. He, he actually, I think it was 2018, he got second place overall in the Tour Divide race, which is about, almost a 3,000-mile race from Banff, Canada to Antelope Wells, New Mexico, over the entire span of the Rocky Mountains. 220,000 feet of climbing, it's like riding your bike up Mount Everest seven times. He did this on a single speed. So I, I knew that, but I, I had never once in my life seriously considered building a single speed. Then because I was looking around trying to find a bike, because I tried Specialized, Trek, Cannondale, nobody had the bikes in stock, Canyon didn't have them in stock, nobody. I was like really having a hard time. And so I also found there's a woman who also did the Tour Divide, and I don't remember her name, and she's riding a titanium mountain bike single speed. And I was like, God, single speed, are you out of your mind? So it just, I, I, I started looking for components. I had a really hard time finding components because again, the, resi the business residue of COVID is not even a residue. It is crushing the world right now. And for you idiots out there who keep saying COVID is over, if you live in a bubble or if you live in a very tiny life that has no connection to any national or international business, you might think it over. And in terms of the virus itself, yes, we're doing really well. 
It's not over. I have multiple friends here in Santa Fe who have COVID right now. It's about 40,000 cases a, a day in the U.S. right now, but we're doing really well. You know, fewer people are dying. The vaccinations are getting, the percentages are getting higher. We're, we're moving in the right direction. Business-wise, we are going backwards at 100 miles an hour. Whether it's raw materials or shipping or staffing or cost of goods and services, I can give you example after example. I drove through a small town two weeks ago. I went to eight restaurants that were supposed to be open. They were all closed. They had six of the eight had signs on the front window that said, we have no staff. Two of the eight I spoke to, they said they could not get enough food to serve in their restaurant to stay open. I tried the next town. Even the fast food restaurants were closed because they had no staffing. This is the residue. Cost of goods and services are three times what they were before. COVID is nowhere near being over. We will be in this for two to five additional years. You better wake up if you're one of these COVID is over people. So I turned this bike into a single speed. And I didn't even ask about the gearing. Luckily, he just sort of knew kind of how I was going to use the bike, and we set up the gearing that way. Um, with, I also went with carbon rims, carbon seat posts, kept my handlebars and stem. Um, this is a titanium frame, a carbon fork. I went with Crank Brothers pedals, which I had left over from my Brompton, and that's it, single speed. I'm telling you, the single speed is the single best thing I've had on a bike in my entire adult life. Yesterday, I did 30 miles on the bike, which is not that big of a deal. And as I got done and I hit my Garmin, the stop on my Garmin, it said, you just set your all-time record for 40K. You did the fastest 40K you've ever done on a single speed. It is crazy. Halfway through the ride, I said to myself, I think this is easier than a geared bike. It is. It's easier. And in the whole time in my head, I said, that cannot be true. It cannot be true. So the whole 15 miles, I'm having this conversation in my head. It can't be this easy. This cannot be easier than a geared bike. I actually think it is. And that 20, that 40K time, I was like, I wasn't trying to ride fast. In fact, I literally was purposely trying not to ride fast. And I still beat my best 40K time ever. The bike is fantastic. I think my tire pressure has been too high and I'm getting some sealant that's coming through the spoke holes. So these are tubeless tires, the rim tape inside. I think that's probably my fault um, because I like to run a little bit higher PSI than a lot of people do because I spend, I would say, half the time pavement or improved trail, and you don't really need to be running super low PSI on that stuff. So I've let some air out hoping to remedy that, but the bike itself is great. You don't need a titanium mountain bike. If you're interested in a bike like mine, Salsa makes a steel version of the cargo that is a fraction of the price that you can buy just the frame and fork and build it up yourself, or you can buy a complete bike. They also make the Journeyman, which starts at less than a thousand bucks, and that's a great bike. You can buy those at REI. Last time I checked, and you can also, REI has an amazing return policy. If you were to ride it a few times and say, look, this isn't right for me, you can bring it back. I'm not encouraging you to do that, but it's a possibility. And so you don't need a super fancy bike. The, the key here is just to get out on the bike. And if you haven't done this in a long time, just, do, just think about one ride and just going out and saying, I'm going to ride from point A to point B, or just ride in my neighborhood, or whatever it is to get you sort of started on that path, because... Um, Man, it's a blast. It's fun more than anything else. That should be the driving factor. Point number five. This is, we've got to get back to some camera situation here. I am in the middle of camera hell. 
because I need a new camera because I the cameras that I have right now are the Fuji X-T2s and for stills, they're okay. Uh, for motion, not so much. So I've got the same amount of Fuji equipment as I do Sony equipment. So I've got a Sony A7C, two lenses, small rig. Um, I've got a ZV, uh, another little sort of point and shoot Sony that's on a little kind of small tripod that I use as well. So I've literally got the same amount and I'm, and I'm in the middle, I'm stuck. So I know that uh, Fuji launches the X-H2 and the X-H2S and Sony came out with the A7R5. So I'm sort of like, I got my ear to the tracks. I'm trying to figure out what direction am I going to go? Am I going to buy more Fuji? Am I going to buy more Sony? Am I going to go from the Micro Four Thirds to, or the APS-C to full frame Sony? What am I doing here? I, I need some, like, something is going to tip the scale here. So <laughs> like an idiot, I'm like, I need to start looking around at what's out there. Like, what, what, what do people think of these things? And then there are the blue gel people, right, on YouTube. All the reviewers, blue gels, pink gels, purple gels, whatever. And I'm like, good grief, what is happening here? But I realized very, very, very quickly uh, that most of the quote-unquote reviewers of these cameras don't make pictures, right? Again, I've spoken about this many times in the past. But I'm trying to find someone who's kind of like me. Can you use, you know, show me someone doing a documentary project where they're in the field for three, four days doing nothing but show me the work and then have this person explain to me the minutia of like, yeah, there's a little shutter lag or the viewfinder is not great or whatever. Everybody just goes through menus, you know, oh, and then they show flow charts and graphs and, and scales and all this stuff that I'm like, I don't care. I just don't care about it. None of these people, I can't say none, but most, and, and Fuji is better than Sony in this regard. I have not found a single Sony reviewer of the A7R5 who makes pictures that are decent. I haven't found it yet. I'm sure they're out there, and I'm sure there's a lot of people who bought the Sony A7R5 who just are working photographers who incorporated it into their workflow, and they are using it really well, and they are making good pictures, but they're working and they're not YouTubers. And so I don't, I'm never going to see their work. Uh, I have friends who are sponsored by Sony. I can go to them and say, dude, what's the deal here? Um, Fuji had a couple of people, not many, but there were a couple who I looked at and said, okay, that guy's a full-time filmmaker. That guy has skill. He knows how to make a film about why this camera works or doesn't work. I found, I found one with Fuji and I was like, okay, that's a good thing. And he's using an, uh, the uh, X-H2S. And then Fuji had another person who was, I was like, why on earth did anyone give this person a camera, let alone allow them to make a film and then put this out publicly? It's so bad, bad, but at least they had the one that was decent. Sony, I have yet to find it. I, I just keep seeing people that I, I cannot find a review that tells me anything, but here's the thing that's driving me insane, and this is probably applicable to um, Panasonic and Nikon and Canon and everybody else. But this is just the way it feels to me right now. It feels like we are in a moment of insanity where the companies realize there's no point in making the perfect camera. So let's make multiple cameras that each do something well and then each suffer in another way so that it makes it impossible to decide and maybe someone will buy both. That's kind of what it feels like. For example, Sony Alpha 1, Sony A7R5. The Alpha 1 is their flagship, 6500 bucks. That's a lot of money for a camera. 
Um, but it just works. You want 4K 120? Great. You shoot it. You want 8K? Great. You shoot it. There's no binning. There's no oversampling. There's no downsampling. There's no this crop, this APS, C, D, F crop. Yes, you can do this, but only at 30p. And this, you can't do this, but it's 60p. And this is not really real 4K 120. This is like a binned thing, whatever. A1 just does it. The problem, A1 doesn't have the flip screen. So, okay, well, that's not really meant for that. So I have friends who bought the A1 just for still photography. And then they bought another camera, the A7 III or A7S III or whatever, which is a 12 megapixel. So they're like, oh, I would never use this for stills, but it's great for video. I can shoot 4K 120, do all this stuff. I'm like, why didn't they just put that in the same camera? So the A7R5 automatically, peop I looked at the confusion and the one person who did a review on that camera that I thought was fantastic, who does nothing but camera reviews, and he's very, very, very good at this, also Canadian. He's like, you need someone on the shoot just to keep track of all the different footage uh, uh, variations and what you're doing. It's so complicated. And he's like, with the A1, you just shoot. 6500 bucks. So that's out the window. You could buy an entire Fuji system for less. So the A1's out the window. The new one is 3500 But then people are like, you know what? The autofocus, not so great. Yeah, 10 frames a second, you're getting these huge files, but the auto, the tracking autofocus, not as good as the A1. Has a great flip screen, autofocus not as good as the A1. I'm like, good grief. What is happening? Half the people I know that have A7R4s don't love them. Everyone universally loves the A7 III, whatever the old one is that's been out for a few years that does video really well but has very small files on the still side. That seems to be universally loved. It is so bizarre and confusing. I just want one camera to do all this stuff. Fuji, on the other hand, again, I saw one person whose film, I was like, that's really good. Then I saw some films that I was like, oh boy, not good. Um, there's apparently some issues, you know, you've got, again, you've got a 26 megapixel sensor in one camera and a 40 in the other. I've been waiting for a higher sensor, uh, high, more megapixels because I was shooting something with someone else. This was probably six months ago. And I am using my X-T2s, 24 megapixel, and they had something like 40 or 50. They had a full frame camera, 40 or 50. It was a Canon of some sort. And we shot the exact same thing. And I looked at those files and I was like, that is night and day. That is just a better file. There's just far more information. And when I saw that, I was like, I want more information. This is, I, I get it. I've been using these X-T2s for whatever it is, four years. And the, they've been passed, you know, there's the X-T3, X-T4. I'm sure the X-T5's coming and I'm still using old technology. And so when I saw this full frame, much higher megapixel count file, I was like, that's just superior to what I'm using. I don't know how else to say it. So you have the X-H2S, which has a lot of things I like about it, like the 4K 120 native. It's, and of course, Fuji's uh, ergonomics and menus and everything else are fantastic to me. They're the best stuff out there, but it's 26 megapixel. To get the 41, all of a sudden, now people are like, you, you know what? The follow focus on autofocus not quite that great. Not great. Universally across the board, every reviewer is like, you know, they're not quite there. It's better. Big improvement. Focus tracking is better. It's not there. Sony's way better. 
another person I know that I look at and who uses both has used both systems is like the Sony autofocus tracking for motion is just way beyond anybody else. So it's the best and Fuji's just not there. And for me, that's a huge thing now where I'm hybrid and I'm probably 80% motion and 20% stills, but I want a bigger file size. So I feel like I am completely caught in the middle. Nikon can't seem to re release a camera. They seem six or eight months behind on the Z8. I've heard they're also having autofocus problems with some, some of their systems. I have no clue what to do here. I just feel like I'm trapped in the middle and no one has made something where it's like, oh, everyone talks about hybrid, but yeah, you're going to have to buy two cameras. I don't want to buy two cameras. I just want to buy one and have it work. You know, I want at least 40 megapixels. That's a big deal. And so I'm at the point now where I'm like, maybe I just quit doing motion entirely and just buy a high res still cam, buy a GFX or something and one lens and just shoot stills. But then I'm like, well, I have a job. And so the job requires me to do motion, especially if I'm going to continue some of the series that I started with blurb that I want to continue, like from the van with Dan, I want that to be much, much better. I want everyday expedition to be much, much better. I want the bike films to be much better. So motion, I can't really just walk away from that. I kind of feel, I almost said fear, feel fear that I'm going to lean towards Sony because one, I can get the megapixel count and two, it's that follow focus, autofocus, man, that has to work. It has to be nuts on and and all of this um ai autofocus now with like birds planes autos that actually is pretty helpful to me because i do find myself in the oh, first of all i love birding now so that's definitely it if i stay with fuji i'll buy the 150 to 600 and if i go to sony i'll buy the 200 to 600 so i've already made that commitment for birding more than anything else so i'm in the middle and i'm confused and angered and um and depressed because of what's happening in the camera camera world uh, okay, so point number six and staying kind of on the cameras, to my left right now, you can't see it, but to my left are two Nikon film bodies, an Nikon F3 HP, which is a just insane camera. And anyone who has ever used the Nikon high eye point viewfinder knows how much better it is than any finder on any film camera I've ever seen. And this goes all the way back to when they first started to use their high eye point finders. Even my F4, my F4 with glasses on, your eye could be a full inch away from the back of the camera and you could still see the entire frame. Their, their finders are so exponentially beyond anyone else's. Their meters have been beyond everyone else's and their strobes have been beyond everyone else's since the advent of the SB24. This goes all the way back to the late 90s. Nikon came out with the matrix meter way beyond anything else. The I was shooting Canon. I'd gone from Nikon to Canon. The Canon meters were terrible in comparison to the Nikon matrix meter. It was, it was unfoolable. They also came, you know, they had high eye point finders. When I switched to Canon, that was a big drawback of the Canon was the finder sucked compared to the Nikon. And the Nikon SB24 was referred to as the magic flash. You could not fool it. Whereas the Canon had the 430EZ, which by all accounts, there was nothing easy about it. It was a nightmare to use this flash. I had to use it. I had two of them. They were horrible. They gave people nightmares. Nikon just killed it. So I have an analog project in mind, and I have the Leicas, which I wanted to use, but I wanted to use something different, kind of a throwback to what I started with. So I have a Nikon FM2T and a Nikon F3. Those are sitting there. But analog, you know, I have a giant cache of film, and I shot film for most of my professional career, 
even when people had all switched over to digital, I went back to film. I spent the last, most of the last like decade of my, my photo career shooting film when everyone was telling me sort of not to do that. And I was like, no, 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 this is really good. I like it. So I haven't shot film in a long time and I had an idea for a project. So I dug those out. I'm also going to incorporate film back into some of my workshops. So Albania, Peru, Lebanon, these are, I'm going to take a film camera with me and at least shoot partially shoot some film just for fun. I'm still shooting digital. Digital is going to be the bulk of what I do because I need the immediacy. I like laying and designing books in real time, which is part of the workshop. But the film is going to be just sort of for fun and ephemera post-trip kind of thing. So that's that's next. Okay, number, point number seven. And then we're going to do point number eight, and that's it. Point number seven is about UFC 280 that went down, I want to say now, two weeks ago now. I should have done this last week, but an incredible range of fights in the UFC two weeks ago. It was um, one of the best cards in a long, long time. And uh, there were some controversial fights. And if we go back, I'm just going to start with three fights. We're going to do Sean O'Malley, Sugar Sean versus Peter Yan, the Russian, the Russian killer. And then we have um, Aljermaine Sterling versus TJ Dillashaw. And then the main fight of the night was Charles Oliveira from Brazil versus Makashev, which is the Dagestani Sambo combat wrestler from Dagestan. And so these fights were loaded. These were the kind of fights that happen where you go, I can't believe this is actually going to happen. And then all three of them on the same fight. And there were actually two other fights on the card that were equally as good. Benil Dariush needs everyone in the world to stop what they're doing right now and pay homage to that guy. He never gets any credit. He never gets any spotlight. He never gets any limelight. He seems like an actual really nice guy, and he's a very intelligent guy, which is probably why he gets no play on from the UFC at all. But Benil Dariush, who I want to say is Iranian, um, he won. He beat Gamrat, who's another, I think, a Russian guy who was favored to win. And he did it so masterfully and beautifully and strategically. And again, he never gets any play or credit. So one, he's out there. That I'm not going to talk much about his fight, but that's that's it. And then there was another fight prior to him. And I think another guy who's in the lightweight division, who's just a machine, who just just absolutely pummeled the guy he was fighting. But let's start with O'Malley and Yon. This was the most controversial fight of the night. Uh, many people thought that Yon won. These are very, very contrasting personalities. Sugar Sean O'Malley has done a masterful job of not only being online and being on social and building his own community and merchandise and, and doing that. He's done it sort of semi-trollish. He's kind of a troll, admits that he's kind of a troll, but then also has a normal side where he's analyzing fights and talking about training and everything else. He's a flamboyant guy, rubs some people the wrong way. I love his fighting style, always had. He's a very unpredictable guy. Striker, probably not the best on the ground, but most of the time he's fighting, um, you know, he's striking. He's only had one loss, which was to Cheeto Vera, and it's because Vera attacked his legs and and um, that was over before it started, really, which is not, um, that's, that's a, 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 a salutation to Cheeto Vera. He's a, he's a tough dude and knew how to, knew how to beat O'Malley. Jan was the number one ranked contender in the world, considered the, quote, best boxer in the UFC, which I find hard to believe. I don't think there's a lot of good boxers in the UFCs. It's not, a, it's not boxing. It's a combination of grappling and wrestling and jiu-jitsu and striking and everything else. So straight boxers are not going to fare well. They're going to get taken down and submitted. 
Um, but he had a great record. He'd been in a couple of great fights, and he was number one ranked contender, and O'Malley was ranked like 15 and somehow got this fight. And everyone thought he would get destroyed. Mean, I didn't think he would get destroyed, but I thought he would get beaten pretty handily by Jan, and he didn't. But a lot of people still thought that Jan won. But here's, to me, the reason why he didn't win. These are two strikers. Jan is constantly talking about boxing ability and striking and kicking ability. Same for O'Malley. Within a half a round, Jan is turned into a wrestler because O'Malley's range and his unpredictability. So he's moving. He's going southpaw. He's going back to traditional. He's going southpaw, traditional. He's moving side to side. He's back. His movement is fantastic. And Jan, who is scoring with body kicks, but is in, a, in, his, in the first round, immediately just becomes wrestler, like takedown guy. So he does get takedowns on O'Malley, but he doesn't do anything with them on the ground. So you have takedown and you have control. Yes, he got the takedown. He did nothing with control every time. I think O'Malley got one takedown, which is odd. They both rocked each other multiple times, um, and the fight was very close. But to me, the fact that Jan had all the takedowns tells you that he had to abandon his strategy of striking with O'Malley. So everyone, no one thought that O'Malley was belonged at the top of the division. He, he does now. You know, it's not to say that uh, he's going to fight. Aljermain Sterling is going to be a problem for him because the wrestling and the pace of getting him, getting in close. And once he's got his hands on him on the ground, I think that's going to be a real problem. I think O'Malley would do, always do well against fellow strikers, but I think anyone who's got the Aljermain chops on the ground is going to be a problem. The other fight was TJ Dillashaw and Aljermain Sterling. Dillashaw was hurt. That fight should have never taken place. His shoulder popped out in the first round. And he was, he just couldn't fight, you know, he just got taken down and pinned and beaten and it was over. And that's not Sterling's fault. He deserves all the credit in the world. He trained, he showed up, he won, but Dillashaw couldn't fight. It just was bad from the, like halfway through the first round. You're like, great. He has one arm <laughs> gets taken down. It's over in, in between rounds, they put his shoulder back in. And you're like, dude, I mean, you should have told the athletic commission that fight should have never happened. They want to get paid. I get it. But it was a waste. And the third fight of the night, the number one fight, the headliner was Makashev. So for those of you who don't know anything about UFC, the Dagestanis are a, are a unique breed. Habib Nagamenarov, I can't, I'm never going to pronounce that name right. Just call him Habib. Habib is undefeated. He, he retired as lightweight champion and no one ever beat him. And Habib is from Dagestan, and they have something called Sambo, Combat Sambo, which is their martial art. And it's unlike anything else, and they are unlike anyone else. If a Dagestani gets you on the ground, it's over. And so the Brazilian who he was fighting, Charles Oliveira, was, was, uh, should have been lightweight champ. He missed weight, and so technically he wasn't, but everyone sort of considered him. He was on an 11-fight win streak. He'd knocked out or submitted all the best people in the lightweight division. And here comes Makashev, who's not fought one person in the top 10, as far as I know. And um, they run into each other like a freight train, and Makashev just destroys him. Not only submits him on the ground with a triangle choke, but just beats him on the feet, too. Just absolutely destroyed Charles Oliveira, which surprised a ton of people. But I'm telling you, these Dagestanis are different. There's something about them, the power of that compared to jujitsu and American wrestling. You know, there's a lot of people with American wrestling that get hype in the UFC, 
but they run up against American wrestlers who run up against Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belts and in these Sambo guys. They just beat everyone. But the fights were incredible. If you don't like UFC, the, from the lightweight division down, you get incredible athletes who are skilled in so many different disciplines. Grappling, jiu-jitsu, striking, wrestling. It is like you have to be good at all of these things. It is a chess match of the fight world compared to the horrendous, you can't even call it boxing anymore, Jake Paul versus whatever, 50-year-old former retired UFC fighter. Boxing has just turned into complete irrelevancy. It's embarrassing. Like, who's next? My grandfather's at the retirement center. He's strapped for cash. Yeah, he'll fight the YouTube star. Why not? He's 85 and has, you know, had his foot amputated. But, you know, wheel him in and and, uh, start swinging. That's what boxing has become. It's kind of embarrassing. Okay, last point. YouTube success. I keep getting people reaching out to me saying, hey, I can't believe you don't have any, you don't have more subscribers. So when people said that, I'm like, I don't know how many subscribers I have. So I go and I look and it's like almost 13,000. So it's 12,900 something. And I'm like, that number one, that's surprising that I have that many. But um, when people ask why I don't have more, the truth is I don't have more and I never will because what I do does not fit the YouTube algorithm. The modern YouTube algorithm is based on click-through rate and average view duration. And so what happens is when you post a film, it's not about producing film, 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 film. It's about click-through rate and it's about average view duration. So when I post a film, they will sample that to, I don't know, 100 or so of the followers that I have. And depending on that reaction will be how they will promote that film. So if you look at what experts are telling you about defeating the modern YouTube algorithm, it's very simple. You commit to one subject. That's the number one thing is that you, quote unquote, expert on one subject. That will never happen. That is so boring and mind-numbing and awful to even think about. And it's why so many YouTubers have mental health issues is because they get roped into this one thing. Like these people who review cameras, I don't know how they do it. I do not know how you get up in the morning and say, I'm going tomorrow, I'm going to do the next one. And the reason why these people don't have any good images to show me is instead of shooting, they're reviewing the next camera from the next brand. So you don't have time to do all that. You can shoot bad portraiture and review a camera, then go out and shoot bad portraiture and do another camera and another camera and another camera. But I cannot commit to one subject. So that kills me right there. The second thing they always tell you to do is you commit to one subject, then you study your analytics. The analytics are terrifying because they show you how crazy all of you people actually are. I know exactly how to get view count and subscribers. And if you study the analytics, this is where your soul goes out the window almost immediately because you say, oh, this is what they're responding to. This is when, this is what, this is how, this is what I have to do. And all of a sudden, your channel's not yours anymore. It's the algorithm. It belongs to the algorithm. And it's terrifying. And it's why so many people do these channels where, yes, their success is high, but you know how miserable they are. It's the person who, you know, there's this weird, van life movement is bizarre. We know there's a ton of phonies in the van life world. We also have this off-grid world now where you've got young people who have moved to the, I don't know, some off-grid cabin, and they're running through fields of flowers, but every day there's a crisis. And oh, by the way, every film has them in a thong on the front. 
doesn't matter. Midwinter, midsummer, thong on thumbnail. So it's like, oh, you want me to take you seriously, and you're now talking about your own mental health issue again, and you went with thong on thumbnail again, not claiming that you know anything about pandering to like horny old men alone in the dark by the masses. That's exactly what those channels are about. And also, and also wrap it in some mythical spiritual journey like you're with the Tara Humara on a vision quest, right? The whole thing is some sort of weird spiritual experiment and yet thong on thumbnail. It's because thong on thumbnail is what's selling the channel. Nothing else matters. It's just the thong on the thumbnail. So I will never have YouTube success. I will never be good at this. I will never have a good following because I cannot do that. And again, this is where your friends are supposed to come in and save you. If you are shooting 4K 120 slow-mos of your camera while talking about quote-unquote being a photographer without ever showing any images, that's when your friends are supposed to step in and say, what are you doing? Stop doing that. Stop pandering. I guess pander is the word. Your friend's coming in and saying, why are you putting yourself in a thong on a thumbnail every time? This, uh, you, stop. Don't do that ever again. That's not cool. That's phony. It's fake. You're pandering. It's awful, obnoxious. Great. You're probably making money. You're ad revenue on the back end. That's what you've done. You, did, you, you went to the crossroads with Robert Johnson without your guitar, and you sold out to the devil because that's what's putting coin in your pocket, and it's embarrassing. But is anything going to change? No, it's only going to get exponentially worse. Have you ever seen TikTok? Holy cow. If you think YouTube's bad, Instagram is bad. Instagram is like ginger beer compared to TikTok. TikTok is the single worst thing I've ever seen on a device in my entire life. And I've seen it exactly once. And what triggered me was I heard it. I heard someone watch, looking at TikTok and I said, what is that? And they go, they just looked up with this gla glazed and glassy look, which we all know. We've all seen that on people who are dope sick. And they just looked and said, it's TikTok. And then I looked at it and I said, that's the worst thing I've ever seen. And the person looked at me and said, it is. It is the worst thing you can possibly imagine. So that's where we're headed. I will not be on TikTok and I will never have YouTube success, but that kind of explains why. I'm not committing to a single topic. I'm not gonna study those analytics and feed, feed the machine of what people wanting me to talk about fluoride elements. I'm not gonna do that. I'm just gonna keep doing what I feel like doing and uh, let, the, let, the, you know, let the punches fly. Okay, that's it. For what it's worth, 69, it's a great year. It's the year I was born. Uh, thanks for hanging around. I don't think anyone got to the end of this, but uh, hypothetically, if you are still here and you're not in prison, um, good on you. Thanks, and I'll be back.